This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have NBC's War Telescope as it aired on January 8th, 1944. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war every Saturday, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. War correspondent Elmer Peterson hosts, and he discusses the optimism the British people are feeling about the war as U.S. and British air attacks wreak havoc on German targets. World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features Elmer Peterson of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. And for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Elmer Peterson in London. For Britain, this is the 227th week of the war. It's been a sensational week, full of promise for the future. We've had some amazing demonstrations of Allied air power, a continuance of the non-stop air offensive that has now run for nine days and eight nights. We've had the return, with a great deal of publicity, of General Montgomery, something which the average Briton takes as an unmistakably clear indication of impending action. And the Germans undoubtedly see the point in this. We've also had new statements and new evidence about the final and extensive preparations now underway for the invasion of Western Europe. Then, and by no means least, there has been the news from Russia, and the reports of deepening gloom and despair in Germany. Today, as example, the British are reading reports from Stockholm that events in Europe may take a dramatic turn at any moment now. Under the circumstances, you would expect the British people to be buoyantly optimistic, and they are more cheerful about the future. Still, four years of war can cut a deep pattern in your thinking, can give you a deep-rooted caution in your views. It may be, too, that this particular time of the year here in Britain, with the blackout curtains drawn tight early in the evening, isn't conducive to taking too bright a view of things. At any rate, one has the impression that the British people as a whole are merely waiting now, for the most part. Certainly the conviction that final action of some sort will be forthcoming soon is deep and solid here now. Also the feeling among many people that they can't do much more than wait in any event. For there are two widely general views current here in Britain about the immediate future. One is the theory that there's going to be a sudden and dramatic blow-up in Germany. This sort of thinking is being fed, and very well, on the highly encouraging reports that come in from neutral capitals in Europe, such as the one today in the London Daily Express. According to German sources, says this dispatch, tension in the Reich over the retreats in Russia and the Western invasion threat has reached a point never before touched. And reading the news from Russia and the accounts of the endless air raids on German war industries in German cities, the average Briton wonders at times if there may not be something to this theory that Germany can't hold out much longer. But there's another view of the matter that's being put before the British people steadily, and one they accept on the whole. 
That's the theory that the defeat of Germany is going to come out of a long and bitter battle over a period of months and not through sudden collapse. The evidence being submitted here is that the Germans still retain great organizational powers, that the Germans can still move armies about quite efficiently, that we have yet to see what the Germans can produce in the way of secret weapons, that the German leaders, with the extremists once more in charge, obviously are determined to exploit every advantage they have left. There are all sorts of individual bits of evidence being put out in this connection. It's true that Germans have lost some 16,000 miles of railway track in Russia, but a large number of locomotives and freight cars have thus been made available for shifting troops in Europe. True, the Germans have had some hard blows to their navy, but they're making a tremendous last-minute effort, it seems, in building U-boats and small coastal craft to defend against invasion. It's true that great sections of Berlin have been destroyed, and one theory here is that complete destruction of Berlin means a collapse of the Nazi war organization, but this has yet to be proved. And despite weeks of rumors and speculation, Germany still retains a good hold, it seems, on her satellite nations. So there's a fairly realistic attitude here about the events of the next few months. It's obvious that the Germans are going to be punished severely, but it's also obvious that the German leaders are determined to exploit every ounce of energy out of their own people. And they may put this over for some time to come. Much depends, of course, on how well the Germans can continue to stand up against the light air attacks. Not because of the effect of these air raids on German civilian morale so much, but the effect on German war economy. That's why the raids now being made on Germany are so important. Their success will determine how much resistance the Germans will be able to put up when the land battles start. It won't be the big air umbrellas over our invasion troops that will make the road easier for them in Western Europe. What is really cutting away the resistance are these raids on German factories and supply lines. These raids which daily see more German fighter planes being destroyed. Now American planes of the 8th Air Force have played a great role during this past week of non-stop air attack. Over hundreds of miles of enemy territory, they've bombed and fought off opposition in the air. They've shot their way into Germany, and they've shot their way out again, at a minimum percentage of loss. But the skill and courage and efficiency of these American airmen doesn't end when their targets have been bombed, when they're on their way home. For a certain amount of American planes do come back damaged from these raids. Now and then, there has to be a crash landing with varying degrees of emergency. These crash landings may take place in a farmer's field. Most of the time, they take place on special airfields fields specially equipped for repair, general overhaul, and reclamation. It's a further demonstration, this, of the ever-developing efficiency of the American Air Forces here in Britain. It's something that helps give the pilot of a damaged plane a real break when he has to come in with a belly landing. And some of the facts about these crash landings by flying fortresses are really amazing. The forts, as you know, are rugged ships. They can take a lot of punishment, even when they're landing with their landing wheels out of order with one or more engines silent. And so about 75% or more of the fortresses that do crash on fields under proper direction go back into the air after repairs have been made. Furthermore, there's no record of any fatal casualties where the forts have crashed on these special fields. In fact, it's seldom that the crews get more than a bruise, if that. But all this doesn't detract from the high drama of these crash landings. The skill and courage and efficiency that's required to bring a badly damaged plane down and bring it down safely. It doesn't detract from the anxieties and fears and worries of the men on the ground, the men who are watching these damaged planes make their landing. What it does do is demonstrate, and very effectively, 
that the organization of American air forces here in Britain has now been perfected to make every possible saving of human life in airplanes. To give you a better idea of what's involved in these crash landings, we have with us here today in NBC's London studio a man directly concerned with them. He is Major John F. Rooney of Louisville, Kentucky. He's in charge of field maintenance units of a strategic air depot of the 8th Air Force. Major Rooney, how would you explain the purpose of these crash landing airfields? Well, it's obvious that the pilot naturally would like to land at his home field. But if he does make a belly landing on his own field, he runs the risk of tying things up for the other planes that have to land. He might block up a runway. For this reason, these damaged planes are directed toward non-operational bases, bases where we can eliminate a good number of the hazards in crash landing. These bases usually have a larger area of grass or soil to make the landing easier. Not only that, but the officers in the control towers are highly experienced in guiding a plane into a crash landing. On the whole, you might say that the pilot has a better chance. Moreover, the plane is then on a field where repairs can be facilitated. Well, it seems to me, Major, that you fellows on the ground must see some really remarkable achievements by the men who bring in these damaged bombers. Yes. How remarkable depends on a lot of factors. On the time of day, for example, how much ground fog and haze there may be around the field, to what extent the plane still has the use of all its control, then there's the wind to consider. If the control cables were shot, for example, the pilot may not be able to maneuver to take advantage of the wind. Shortage of gasoline also may be a factor. However, the boys do bring them down under any and all conditions. They have plenty of nerve, these pilots of ours. They certainly keep cool in the finches. But is there anything the members of the crew can do to help their crash landing? One thing they try to do if possible, and if they have time. They try to loosen up the ball turret and drop it. They do this so they can come in level and have the plane land with a minimum of damage. Now, which planes, Major, are directed towards these special crash landing fields? Those which have something wrong with their landing gear. Either their hydraulic system has been shot out, or the tail wheel damaged, or the tires blown by flak. Otherwise, if the landing gear is in order, the planes can get down <coughs> on their own field. Well, what happens, Major, when a damaged plane has to crash land as best it can, away from these special fields where you have all the emergency equipment? In that case, they land in the best field they can find. And then it's up to our mobile repair units to patch the plane up. And some really fancy repair jobs are done by these mobile units. Some very fancy flying, too, when a pilot takes a repaired ship off some farmer's field. Some of these mobile repair units, by the way, have repaired the same plane as many as three times and in widely distant parts of England. There's another angle to these crash landings, as I understand it, and that's how the pilot of a bomber feels about it. So we also have with us today First Lieutenant Randall Jacobs of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Lieutenant Jacobs made a really spectacular crash landing after the first raid on Schweinfurt on August 17th. And just a week ago, he had to put another plane down in the English Channel. Now, first of all, Lieutenant Jacobs, you pilots, as I understand it, have your own interest in saving a damaged plane. That's true, chiefly because we get devoted to our own plane so much that we'd much prefer to have our plane repaired and go out in a new one. That's especially true, of course, when you've been flying the same plane for some length of time. And your plane, the one you crash-landed, had been damaged pretty badly, I understand. Badly enough to make a crash landing necessary. One tire was gone, for example, and one of the flaps was shot away. Altogether, we'd taken about 11 20-millimeter hits, and we were short of gas, which made it a bit difficult. I didn't have time to maneuver around the field, 
So I just bellied it in. And you had to come in pretty fast. Yes, at about 150 miles an hour, which is, well... Hmm, pretty fast. Yes, it's moving to that sort of a land. But your plane took it. <laughs> yes, she landed nicely, even though she did kick up an awful lot of dirt. Most of the crew looked pretty messed up with dust and dirt when they got out, but no one was hurt, not a scratch. Well, tell me, Lieutenant, does the rest of the crew have anything to do? Did they have anything to do in your crash landing? No, it rests pretty much on the pilot. And in this case, your crew wanted to try the landing rather than jump. Yes. I asked them what they wanted to do, and they all wanted to try getting the plane down. Well, it's a good demonstration of how both crews and planes are being saved, even though forced landings are necessary. And now, could I ask, Lieutenant, what does a pilot think about when he's crash-landing a flying fortress after a race? As far as I'm concerned, you're too busy to think when you're doing something like that. Too busy to think of anything except to use everything you ever knew and learned about making a plane do what you wanted it to do. And that's not easy. Of course, with your controls not working properly in most cases. Well, there's an idea of what goes on here in Britain when the raid is over. When, as occasionally happens, one of those powerful great bombers has to come down to Earth as best she can. It's all a part of the campaign, after all, to break the hold the German leaders have over the German people by making it impossible for the Germans to continue the war. And there's great interest here in Britain now in what the German leaders have in mind as their final defense plan. One thing seems certain, judging from the latest reports from Germany, and that is that the Nazi leaders are counting on creating as much confusion and destruction as possible. It provides another good reason why the Allied invasion of Western Europe must be sure and certain, with no possibility of failure. Obviously, the Germans expect to see the occupied countries devastated by prolonged battle. They hope, too, that this devastation may prove a factor in getting the Allies to agree to some terms by which the war might be shortened. That a situation may be created still, in the end, out of the coming months of bombing and land fighting, where most of Europe will be thrown into complete chaos. That the Allies will find it necessary to make a choice between offering Germany acceptable peace terms or developing these chaotic conditions that will take years to remedy. And there are circles here in Britain that believe that the unconditional surrender formula should be explained better now to avoid a really systematic destruction of Germany, to avoid creating conditions in Germany which may lead to conditions of anarchy. However, it seems doubtful that any new declarations of the German people are scheduled for the immediate future, at least. It seems doubtful also that the Allies are going to be lured into invading Western Europe until such time as they can move with complete precision and efficiency. The invasion fears now current in Germany. The daily lifting of places where the Allies may land are regarded here as no more than a good example of German efforts to encourage the Allies to move before they are ready, and while the German armies are better capable of dealing with invasion. It's obvious, too, that the Germans will try to the end to exploit any possible political differences between the Allies. Their retreat from Russia, now so clearly indicated, may be followed before too long by a retreat from Finland and the Baltic states. A retreat guided by necessity, but also a quick retreat in the hope that Russian occupation of this area of North Europe will pose new political problems for the Allies. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war by Elmer Peterson of NBC's London staff. And here's a bulletin from Moscow. Premier Joseph Stalin has just announced the fall of Kirovograd, German defense key in the Upper Dnieper Bend. This is a national broadcasting company. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. 
Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast for past episodes and more information.